So last episode it was the death of Prigozhin. This week, is it the death of Wagner as well? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. I'll be honest, I had been hoping not to be, or having to be, talking about Prigozhin in any way, shape or form. Realistically, that's not going to happen, at least not quite yet. So, having talked about, as I say, the, the death of Prigozhin and tangentially what that might mean for Wagner, I actually now want to just focus this week on precisely the mercenary organisation. What may happen to it and, more to the point, what this may mean. And to, to kick off, there was an interesting audio message that was spread around the Wagner's own social networks. And it concluded by advising people, either wait or look for other opportunities to earn money. Keep an eye on the international situation. If our team is admitted back into the special military operation, we will resume active recruiting and work will continue. So on the one hand, making it clear that at present, at best, Wagner is in a holding pattern, but the possibility that they're hoping that it actually might, might go back in track. And this reflects an uncertainty that is really quite, I think, generally felt. For example, there was an article in the newspaper Komsomolskaya Pravda, which essentially laid out four options. One, that Wagner ends up joining the Ministry of Defence. And clearly this is actually the Ministry of Defence's own preferred option. It continues quite assiduously to try and recruit Wagner fighters either into the regular military or into the mercenary companies, particularly Redut, that it itself controls. Option two is for them to stay in Belarus. Now, Lukashenko actually has reasons to value Wagner's presence. First of all, as trainers for his own military, but also as trolls with the West. It does give him that continued capacity to get under the West's skin, which he seems to value as a way of maintaining some degree of traction. And recently he called the European Union's demand that Wagner be withdrawn from Belarus unreasonable and absurd. And he particularly drew a parallel with NATO's presence in neighbouring countries such as well, Baltic States and Poland and essentially said, well, foreign, all foreign forces ought to be withdrawn. So more or less paralleling a at most a couple of thousand of Wagner fighters in Belarus with the entire NATO strategic architecture. Look, he is not so foolish as to think that NATO is going to pull out of these regions just on his say-so, but again, you know, it, it is part of his overall strategy, is to essentially try and maintain relevance. It gives him, well, A, I think it gives him a certain degree of personal satisfaction. B, it gives him a certain credibility with Moscow. You see, boss, I am actually sort of needling these people who are your enemies. But it also gives him unexpected relevance within the West, in that it keeps him sort of, shall I say, a, a subject of interest. 
And maybe he's hoping at some point that can be parlayed into some kind of deal. We'll have to wait and see. Given that as of the 4th of August, uh, Wagner Group License Limited Company was registered in Belarus, with its notional base being in the village of Tsel, which is precisely where the, the Wagner base in Belarus is, or to a degree was, you know, it, it, it suggests that there is the possibility for, for something going forward. And it's worth noting, actually, that in its official registration documents, it puts down as its main purpose other types of education, which is, I suppose, one way of describing what Wagner does. So, again, option, option two will stay in Belarus. Option three, go to Africa. Well, obviously, it's already in Africa, and I'll be talking much more about that in a moment. And option four is to form one or more successor organisations. In other words, not so much for Wagner fighters to be subsumed into other mercenary groups, but to create their own Wagner 2.0 or 2.1 or, or whatever. But no one really knows, first of all, what is actually going to happen to Wagner. But secondly, who's really in charge? After all, it was worth noting that when that plane went down, it wasn't just Prigozhin that was in it. There was Dmitry Utkin, Wagner himself, the man who, who gave it uh, its name and from the reasons of, and I still love this formulation, that is still being used in the Russian press because of his appreciation of the aesthetic of the Third Reich. In other words, this is a neo-Nazi who has swastikas t tattooed on his body. Anyway, he was, in a way, the, the kind of primary, shall I say, war leader. Of, of Wagner, and also who went, went down was Valery Chikalov, who was the logistics chief. Now, look, it's not just that logistics is clearly crucial in wartime, but when we're talking about Wagner, this multi-tentacular organization that sprawled across Africa, Belarus, and still has kind of vestigial elements within Russia itself, logistics is more than just simply making sure that, that, that pay is paid and food is provided. He was at the centre of this structure. So, you know, with those three alone going, you know, it really has decapitated it. The other most significant figure, I would argue, Andrei Troshev, with the call sign Sedoy, grey-haired. Well, I mean, he'd already been seduced and taken the Ministry of Defence's COPEC and is now working for Redut. Now, there are still all kinds of relatively high-profile and experienced figures, Anton Elizarov, who went by the call sign, goes by the call sign Lotus, who was the commander of the Solidar Assault and has a lot of kind of credit as a result of that amongst the fighting men. There's Alexander Kuznetsov, Ratibor. Again, he particularly headed up, as I recall, Wagner's own, as it would see it, special forces and reconnaissance unit. And perhaps even more importantly, Konstantin Pikalov goes by the call sign Mazai, who seems to be largely in charge of their Africa operations. So there are these figures. The question is, though, are they going to have the kind of the, the, the support from above and below? In other words, is the Kremlin willing to let them take over? And also, are they going to have the credibility with, with the trigger pullers, who are, as I said, spread all around? If we just look at Africa, I mean, they're still involved in Mali, in the Central African Republic, in Niger. They're no longer active in Mozambique, but um, moving to Burkina Faso. They're in Sudan. They're also in, in Libya and Syria, though these seem to be areas that the Ministry of Defence has definitely 
um, chosen to focus its efforts on in trying to supplant them. We've had visits from Deputy Defence Minister Yunus Bekyevkurov to both places precisely to try and A, demonstrate that Moscow has not forgotten them, but B, also try and take over the roles that were previously played by uh, Wagner. And, of course, it's also worth noting there are places where their role is not so kinetic. It's not just simply about providing military support for a regime or fighting jihadists or the like. If you look at, say, Zimbabwe, there it's not so much Wagner, but the disinformation and political campaigns that the Concord group as a whole could provide. And that is absolutely crucial. Because if you're going to understand Wagner, and certainly whether it has any kind of a future in Africa, we have to understand that it's not just simply about the mercenary company. It's not just simply about the men with guns. It's its role as part of Prigozhin's wider Concord group, which is, was, and maybe will be, a wide-spanning conglomerate that covers everything from kinetic operations in Africa to investments and the like to domestically, you know, the the real money spinners, which I'll come to in a minute, which are things like providing food for the military once upon a time, National Guard, schools in various cities, including Moscow and St. Petersburg, and, and such like. And, of course, the troll farms, the overt media empire and the like. All of that, and Wagner was just part of it. That meant that in Africa, first of all, it was providing authoritarian support, regime support services. In other words, for regimes in which, shall we say, rule of law and transparency don't mean quite as much as we might like, Concord Group can provide both trigger pullers and political technologists and so forth. And perhaps equally important, it allowed for payment in novel ways. Generally speaking, if you're going to hire mercenaries, you have to pretty much pay them there and then cash on the barrel. On the other hand, given that Wagner was part of this conglomerate, there are all kinds of other ways that don't involve upfront payments and which lend themselves, to be blunt, much more easily to kickbacks to the people making the decisions. So take an example of Sudan. There, I mean, what happens is basically since 2017, Concord has been involved. So you have Sudan that is in there helping support the military regime, provide training and the like. But also you have the Concord group company Mero Gold, which incidentally is under certainly U.S. sanctions, which has a gold processing plant. And what it does, it buys at good rates because it has pretty much a monopoly in this respect. Gold, which is gathered by artisanal miners, in other words, little, little sort of you know, freelance operations. You get your little nugget of, of gold, you take it to them, they will buy it, they will process it, and then they will transfer it, they will sell it on the open market, they will make a very healthy profit. Generally speaking, you know, it seems to be that about $2 billion worth of gold is unaccounted for since 2017. And of that, you know, a certain amount makes its way back to Russia, particularly through, it seems to be, the United Arab Emirates. A certain amount ends up, as I say, kicked back to local Sudanese figures who are sort of grandfathering this, this process. And obviously, not just the Russian state, not just Concord and Prigozhin, but a lot of people all along the route get, get their cuts. So the interesting thing here is you create a system which has all kinds of shadowy 
incentives built in for people to want to continue it. But it also means that from the point of view of the Sudanese regime, they get all the virtues of having Wagner gunmen without actually having to pay directly, but just simply having granted Concord a concession, a concession which also will personally enrich you and your mates. It's a powerful business model, it has to be said. But it relies precisely on this Concord group, on the interconnection, on Wagner just simply being part of a whole ecosystem of companies which are linked together by formal above-board connections, but also a whole variety of illicit financial flows. Concord is being, bit by bit, dismantled. Again, this is the classic dynamic of the Putin system. And just as a little sideline, I mean, it's worth noting with a certain degree of satisfaction the degree to which it is characteristics central to the Putin system. Characteristics which actually have allowed Putin to remain in power for so long, which are in many ways now proving to be absolutely crucial weaknesses. Whether we're talking about the lack of unity of command on the battlefield, as all sorts of different agencies and individuals vie for favour and resources, or whether we're talking on the fact that although clearly the Kremlin would like Wagner's operations in Africa to continue, Putin is unable or unwilling to stop the kind of hyena-like predation that takes place. With, with Prigozhin first weakened and then now dead, it means that his rivals, and just generally people who are looking to, to make some money in these straitened financial circumstances, fall upon his empire to try and wrench with their open jaws a chunk of, of nice bloody meat for dinner. And what we're seeing is, I mean, already companies like Eminvest and Mero, which are crucial to the resource exploitation in Africa, are in, in various people's sites. We have the Patriot Media Group, which included, after all, his troll farms, and the sort of covert um, me media angle, is in part shuttered, in part, again, looking like it's being taken over. If we look at, for example, the activities of the trolls, not just uh, relating to Africa, but, but more, more generally. I mean, at first, with the mutiny, they were silent. They didn't know what the hell to do. Then they actually, t well, in many cases, not all, turned against Prigozhin, suggesting either that they were sufficiently opportunist to know when not to leap upon a sinking ship, or else that they actually had a new boss. Now that Prigozhin is safely and conveniently dead, they have begun to praise him once again, but at the same time, very, very strongly praising Putin. So, you know, the, 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 the suggestion is that this is now under new management. We're not quite sure who. We're not quite sure how this is being managed, whether it's a stable situation or whether it's, there's someone who's there as a sort of temporary pro tem manager or whatever. But what it absolutely does is it emphasizes the degree to which this is a, a business empire which is currently well, one could politely put it in flux. What that actually means is indigestion. And the point is, that's where the real money was. You know, if one looks, for example, at these uh, contracts that, especially since 2013, Concord Group had had for various provision of services to the military and other elements of the government. In part, these were actually hidden subsidies. 
to cover the cost of Wagner. Rather than actually paying Wagner direct, you pay another, you know, you, you give a feather-bedded contract to another bit of Concord. And that, in effect, covers the costs of Wagner. And the second one was just quite simply that these were cases of the classic embezzlement, that because Concord, Pogorzin, you know, was favoured by the Kremlin, favoured by Putin, therefore he could get away with essentially imposing uneconomic contracts and often providing very, very substandard services. I mean, if one looks at that, there's so many legal cases that have been brought against Concord for the provision of bad food. And when I say bad, I don't just simply mean not very nice tasting, but actually, you know, out of date, rotten and the like, food to schools in just the St. Petersburg region, let alone in anywhere else. But the point is, Concord didn't have to worry about this. As long as there was this powerful Krisha, this powerful roof, then, you know, it basically could continue. So this is a business model that is based upon politics at least as much as on economics. And it was able to basically buck economics because of Wagner. Everything connected together. I mean, it's a little bit of a fanciful analogy, but I almost think it's a little bit like one of these big, mega, global brand name football teams, where the real money is not actually made through winning World Cups or the like. The real money is made through this massive business empire of concessions and merchandising and granting the right to appear in football-related computer games and all that. So the interesting thing is you need the football team in order to build the brand name. You leverage the brand name in order to get the money. And a certain amount of that is fed back to keeping your football team at the top of its, you know, leagues by you know, buying the right players or whatever else. But a lot of the rest goes to shareholders and the like. Well, in some ways, I think we, we could see the same sort of parallel here. That Wagner was the football team. Wagner was got the attention. That Wagner built the brand. And it's worth noting, after all, particularly in Africa, you know, often individuals felt that when they were dealing with Wagner, when they were dealing with Prigozhin, they were in effect dealing with the Kremlin. That was then leveraged to basically build up the real money-making businesses, which were either relying on subsidies because of Wagner's activities, or because Wagner and Prigozhin were still regarded as useful or even necessary, could basically get away with all kinds of economically dubious but very lucrative practices. But now, though, there's no Prigozhin. The Kremlin is clearly uncertain about Wagner. You know, it, it wants what Wagner provides, particularly in terms of traction in Africa, which I'll come to in a moment. But on the other hand, it is also deeply concerned about it. The Wagner brand name is still powerful, but is now, you might say, again, it, it, at a, a pivotal moment where it might end up fading. And more generally speaking, the state is not willing to protect, let alone to subsidise Concord management. 
So I think, you know, for all of these reasons, I think this, this is a business model which really is beginning to come under trouble. And people have suggested that, oh, well, it's easy because GRU, military intelligence, was very closely integrated with Wagner at every stage. You had officers embedded with units in Africa. You had GRU figures within the, 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 the central structures and so forth. Well, yes, but as I say, that is essentially about both using Wagner in Africa as a cover for having your own officers and also being able to watch, monitor and influence the trigger pulling operations. The whole wider business empire, the whole capacity to balance war fighting and money making and genuine service to clients. I mean, we should realize this, that actually the reason why people go and hire Wagner in Africa, yes, in part it, it's facilitated and encouraged by corrupt payments and the like, but it's actually because, frankly, Wagner is providing things that certain regimes believe they need. So it's about balancing genuine service with all kinds of opaque and essentially corrupt business practices. Yeah, the honest answer is, can someone just parachute into that? Again, we've had other names being mentioned of people who could take over. Gennady Timchenko, um, aging but still shrewd businessman, clo very close to Putin, very much who was involved in the oil business, who is identified as one of the figures who... I'm not sure if actually it's true that he funds Redut, but in some ways I suspect that, again, he acts as a financial conduit for Redut. But the point is, Timchenko is not going to get on a plane and fly to some you know, questionable African state, let alone go and negotiate with rebels or whatever, in the way that Prigozhin was willing to do. Timchenko is a dodging a whole variety of uh, you know sanctions and arrest warrants and the like and and be rich enough and old enough and secure enough in Putin's favor that he doesn't need to worth stressing this point Prigozhin did not come up with the notion of Wagner Wagner was was dreamt up by the Kremlin and to a lesser extent the the general staff Back in 2013, they decided they wanted to have something like this as a kind of deniable instrument for operations, precisely in theatres like Africa. And then Prigozhin was the guy who was tapped to be the business manager. And at first, he was reluctant. But the point is, he couldn't say no to the Kremlin because his entire career, his entire business empire depends on Kremlin favour. So you know, this is something that gets foisted on people, I think, more than anything else. Timchenko, as I say, is close enough to Putin that he doesn't have to worry about being forced into this. Another name that was mentioned was Const is Konstantin Malafeyev, head of the uh, sort of wider you know, Tsargrad business empire and so forth, the businessman, very much a, a nationalist, a strong supporter of, of Russian orthodoxy and a kind of muscular orthodox imperialism almost. This is the guy who, after all, was behind figures like Strelkov and their activities first in Crimea and then in the Donbass. But the point is, I, I don't see Malofeyev as being regarded as a true loyalist. I think Malofeyev, he kind of straddles the kind of Kremlin nationalism and the increasingly anti-Kremlin turbo-patriot movement. And if you look at Sagrad, it's interesting because it's you know, absolutely rock solid behind the, the Russian state, behind the, the, the war in Ukraine. 
But on the other hand, you know, he's, he's willing to allow space for, for opinions that are pretty critical, but from the, the, the nationalist side of things. So again, I'm not convinced that this is a man whom the Kremlin would want to give a continent-spanning military political role. And in fact, as I said, there, there's, there's very few people, I think. I mean, look, who knows? I mean, someone can come, can come out of nowhere and if they're given the support and the money and the political backing that they need, then they, they can become the, the new head of Wagner. The point is, though, are they going to have the authority with the grunts on the ground? And are they going to have the authority with the current and prospective clients? That's a, a lot harder to actually be able to tell. So this is why I'm, I'm really unconvinced about the future of Wagner in Africa. And this speaks to a whole wider question as to whether or not Russia has an Africa strategy. So what I want to do now is have a break and then come back and talk about, as it were, this in the context of Russian strategy, its military and generally the, 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 the wider implications rather than just looking at Wagner, the mercenary army. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So there's quite a debate as to whether or not Russia has an Africa strategy. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of this comes down to a rather sterile discussion as to quite what the word strategy means. Just to be clear, as far as I'm concerned, a strategy is not just a sense of an end state that you want, but also a roadmap as to how you get there. What I think that Russia has in Africa is, you might say, a, what we could almost think of as a series of strategic goals, but not actually a, a coherent strategy. Look, what it wants is, look, to take advantage of the opportunities that largely are provided by the West. As we withdraw our forces or support as we fail to address genuine or perceived uh, concerns, as we maybe prop up the wrong kind of regimes, all, all kinds of different things. To what end? Firstly, just simply to get some influence. Russia has, after all, I wouldn't say painfully few friends, I would say no real friends. I mean, OK, arguably all countries are essentially self-interested and will look after their own interests. You know, if, if one looks at all the, the fine rhetoric, after all, of, of Western unity, you know, countries are competing over defence and other contracts. They are spying on each other directly or indirectly. Um, they have all kinds of their own interests in play at the same time. That's just the way things are. And in that kind of context, obviously, you know, Russia seeks to get the traction that, that it can, whether it's because it's hoping for a few more votes at the UN General Assembly or whether it's just hoping to be able to transfer this back so that it can turn to its own people and say, you see, 
the West is actually in the minority, we have the support of the rising global South, you know, variety of reasons. It is also a great distraction for the West. That, you know, particularly there are some countries, such as the, the southern Mediterranean ones, which look to Africa and are particularly concerned about issues like flows of refugees. Let's be perfectly honest, if you're in, in Italy or Spain, it's actually quite possible to sustain an argument to say that the real security threat does not come from Ukraine, but actually comes from North Africa. And then there are countries such as, say, France, which have a much more personal and visceral post-imperial interest in what's going on in Africa and is therefore that much more concerned by Russian actions. And on a totally practical level, these are countries that, firstly, your operations can, like Wagner's, maybe earn some money, but also provide you with routes. They can provide you with the sort of places whereby you can perhaps procure the sort of components or raw materials that you need and that the West would like to choke off, or maybe even places where you can sell stuff. So there are practical, there are political, and there are wider ideological goals at work, but there isn't a sense of this is where we absolutely want to be. Not least because the sense I get is that the Russians regard this as a temporary and closing window of opportunity. That particularly Africa, at the moment there's a lot of opportunities up for grabs, in this interval between the West essentially retreating from Africa and China not yet having bought up everything that, that's worth having. So, you know, it is that also that sense that this is a, t a temporary situation. Now, in that context, one has to ask, well, you know, does Russia really need Wagner for all of this? To a degree, yes. Absolutely, Wagner is useful. And it's hard to see, quite frankly, how in many of the places where it's involved, just simply a mercenary company, you know, Redut or whatever else, can provide what the, the locals are looking for. Because as I said, it's all this part of this kind of wider package of authoritarian regime support services. But on the other hand, Russia does still have a certain amount of cultural traction. There is not, I'm, I'm not sure if I could really call it soft power. It's almost, shall we say, inverse Western soft power. A lot is made, for example, of the fact that during the recent coup in Niger, there were protesters waving Russian flags who were in support of, of, of the coup. But were they waving Russian flags because they thought, Russia, what a great place. We would like our country to be more like an African Russia. Or, and this is, I think, the, my view, and it certainly is one that's borne out by some of my conversations with people who are more on the ground and know much more about this. I should stress, I'm not in any way an Africanist. It's more that you wave a Russian flag because it's a way of demonstrating that you are opposed to the West and the previous regime that you felt was too close to the West, a puppet of the West, or whatever. So in this respect, you know, it becomes a transgressive statement but nonetheless, the degree to which it really is pro-Russian has to be taken, you know, very much at face and uh, beyond face value. And in this respect, look, remember, countries are trying to use whatever assets they have. And if you are a relatively poor country, you are often in a position to essentially try to play off different potential sponsors and backers against each other. And that's basically what you do. You know, back in the Cold War, it was much more obvious. 
that you, you, you know, if the West wasn't willing to, to build a dam, you could turn to the Russians, perhaps, which is what happened in Egypt. You know, generally speaking, you, you find ways in which you can see who is going to be the most generous patron. No, none of them can buy you, but they can rent you at a reasonable rate. Well, to a degree, that is still the case. Russia is not obviously in a position to provide aid or the like, quite the opposite. Its operations in Africa essentially have to be, at the very least, self-funding, ideally actually profit-making. But on the other hand, you know, it can provide services and the kind of people who carry them out, whether it's military or other, unconstrained by a lot of the, the limitations of their Western counterparts. You know, when it comes down to it, however cynical we may feel Western governments to be, they are bound by you know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States, the Corruption Act in the UK, all kinds of other things. They, they are not in a position to so uh, blatantly and amiably hand over sacks of money in order to win contracts. They cannot carry out some of the activities that many of these regimes would like to be done and so forth. We are maybe not, shall we say, the good guys, but we are undoubtedly, in this context, the better guys. And that's worth just dwelling on just for a moment. As a result, I think that there is a, a certain over-fascination with Wagner in the West, and particularly in its activities in Africa. And that sense of, oh, we have to deal with Wagner. And if we deal with Wagner, other problems get solved. Um, there's talk about, for example, designating Wagner as a terrorist organization, which unlocks a whole series of additional controls and sanctions. Wagner is not a terrorist organization. Sure, it may be politically convenient in order to be able to use the, these additional measures against it, but it is a, a conceptual creep that is, I think, a distinctly dangerous one. But more to the point, even if you waved a magic wand and had Wagner disappear from the world. And ironically, if that is your goal, probably Putin is the guy who's actually, if I can mix my metaphors, the Santa Claus who's most likely to bring it for you. But the point is, it would not in any way address the numerous issues which are behind the presence of Wagner in Africa. The corrupt regimes, the governance challenges, the fact that there are countries in which their armed forces are unable to cope with insurgencies and the like. You know, all of these are kind of issues which are systemic and which Russia and Wagner exploit, but absolutely do not create. And I think we have a tendency too often to fixate on the exploitation rather than the root causes thereof. Wagner is a symptom, not a cause, and we need to acknowledge that. So, look, in Africa, I mean, I think that we're going to see Russian influence decline because I don't think Wagner can maintain its, its status, even if Wagner actually survives as an organisation. Without the wider infrastructure, shall we say, of, of Concord Group, its offer is going to be that much less effective. So bit by bit, Wagner will decline. But let's be perfectly honest. If we are really worried about foreign countries exploiting the governance challenges of Africa to gain influence, then that vacuum that is created by Wagner will be filled by others, whether it's China or whether it's someone else. It's a question of whether we can be bothered, whether we regard it as important enough to address the vacuums. And if not, let's just be honest with ourselves and more or less say, ha, huh, it sucks to be Africa, but that's not our problem.
Anyway, let me move off that particular soapbox, which has, after all, nothing really to do with Russia, and move on to just a, briefly looking at some of the domestic impacts, particularly from a, a military point of view. Wagner clearly had, you know, before the mutiny, been pushed, pulled back from the front line in Ukraine. I think it was being held as a reserve force. It was being allowed a you know, breathing space to reconstitute after the meat grinder of the Bakhmut struggle. But it was essentially going to be used as a reserve force, a fire brigade, for as and when Ukrainian forces reached or punched through the main Russian defensive lines, particularly to the south. Well, clearly that's, that's not going to be available. There are naturally a whole, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, a series of other new mercenary organisations, many of them sponsored by large state concerns, whether we're talking about Gazprom or Roscosmos or whatever. To a large extent, though, I see this really as just an alternative source of extra manpower, of making these companies, of taxing these companies in a way, forcing them to pay out in order to attract people who might not otherwise have signed up for one of the existing mercenary organizations or the Ministry of Defense itself. They're not going to have the kind of same degree of coherence, but also they're unlikely to have anything like the same kind of force on the battlefield. The interesting thing was Wagner was effective, and it was effective in part because it had this supply of conscript soldiers who could be used as disposable infantry. But it was much more than that. Wagner clearly did have the capacity to operate a lot more independently, a lot more freely, without worrying too much about the official Russian way of war, which is, after all, very formulaic, very algorithmic in terms of how it says how you should fight at you know, various types of, of operations. Wagner could, could break all the rules. And in that respect, I mean, I think what's quite interesting is the degree to which we've already seen a certain Wagnerization of the regular military. That lessons learned by Wagner have then been picked up. And you know, whether we're talking about, for example, abandoning the battalion tactical group as the sort of the, the primary sort of functional unit and instead increasingly creating these sort of rather more flexible assault units or even actually having its own Storm Z units, which, like Wagner, are recruiting from the labor camp system, although on a very slightly different basis from, from, from Prigozhin's. So, you know, we are seeing the fact that Wagner was able to be, in some ways, an incubator of different ideas and innovations, and then the regular military could decide which one of those to pick up and which one of those to ignore. Now, why that's particularly interesting is because what we still don't know is whether this represents a real change in the military or a temporary expedient response to a crisis. And the parallel that I often draw is actually with what happened in the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Because there, Soviet military rolled in in 1979, expecting this to be a, a short-lived, largely symbolic military deployment. That after a certain point, within six months really, they would have been able to pull out, having installed a new proxy government in place that was going to be loyal to, to Moscow, it's all beginning to sound just a teeny, teeny little bit familiar. And anyway, they got sucked into a 10-year war. Well, let's hope that uh, that's not the, the parallel for Ukraine. But the interesting thing is this, exactly. They, they, they went in very, very conventionally. And in some ways, they were exceedingly effective. If one looks, at, for example, at how their special forces 
moved in, essentially seized Kabul ahead of the main paratrooper and then land forces, as well as wiping out uh, the deeply, deeply unpleasant dictator of what was, after all, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. It was already notionally a, a, a Soviet-style system. But anyway, they, they stormed the presidential palace, killed him so that they could install Babarak Karmal, Moscow's chosen successor. That was very neatly done. It was the subsequent attempt at pacification of what was essentially a rural nation with a terrifyingly fierce tradition of resistance to central rule is where obviously everything started to go wrong. Everything from the fact that this was essentially a mechanised force that was really built for mass tank wars on the plains of Europe or potentially northern China through to just simply the sort of small tactical details of life. Even, I mean, the, the, one, the one that I always loved is they have this uh, splendid red star emblazoned on the belly of the Mill 24 helicopter gunship. The thing is, the, the ideal location from a purely aesthetic point of view is, is right in the middle, which also happens to be where there is the refueling point for the petrol tanks. In other words, it's basically a star painted right on top of the most vulnerable bit in this otherwise heavily armoured helicopter. I mean, you might as well just more or less just paint a bullseye with a little sort of mark in Pashtu saying, shoot here. But they learned. They absolutely did learn over time. The Soviet, just like the Russian military, may not do it in the same way and at the same speed as the West, but it is a learning organisation. They painted over the Red Stars or moved them. And lots of other changes as well, moving into a much, much more flexible mix of hearts and minds as well as very vicious counterinsurgency relying more on dismounted infantry, on special forces and paratroopers, relying much less on, on mass tank operations, blah, blah, blah. So on, on it goes. But the really fascinating thing was that the 40th Army, which was the Russian fighting force, Soviet fighting force in, in Afghanistan, made a lot of these changes. And then the war is over. The 40th Army is, is returned to the motherland. And the majority of these lessons were deliberately forgotten or at least consigned to um, you know papers which were then not really in, in, in wide distribution. Why is that? Well because the decision was made that this was actually a distraction. That yes all kinds of modifications have been necessary to allow the Soviet military to operate in the specific circumstances of Afghanistan. And while some of these were worth adopting more broadly, most of them would actually be a distraction given that the Red Army's key role was to remain for a big war with NATO or China. So, no, it's not after all as if our masters are going to be so stupid as to deploy us in a mountainous Islamic re rebel region in the future, so let's put that all to one side. Of course, what then happens is, a few years later, the, the now Russian military is deployed to Chechnya, and they have to painfully relearn many of the same lessons. But that's the, you know, not, in some ways that's not the point. Realistically speaking, the high command made a sensible decision to essentially not adopt most of the lessons of Afghanistan because they didn't think it was going to be the war they were going to fight. So the big question is going to be, 
whether or not the kind of operations that Wagner fought, and more to the point, the way Wagner fought, the kind of resource constraints which shaped its way of war, are ones that the Russians think they're going to face in, in the future? Or do they feel that either they're not going to be fighting substantial wars, or that they will be doing so in a much more well-resourced manner, in a way that in which actually political decision-making and military doctrine are hand-in-hand, hand, in a way they haven't been since the very beginning of this war? Now, look, I honestly I have no idea. I have a suspicion that the, the Wagnerization of the Russian military will continue, not least because there is an interesting contingent of Wagner fanboys in Moscow, not at all in the military and security apparatus, but within the kind of, I wouldn't say political leadership, but shall I say that kind of, um, the orbit of the political leadership, the, the think tankers and the pundits and so forth, who see Wagner not just as the best and the brightest because they actually won victories, though that matters, but also in the way that Wagner broke the rules in order to achieve the results that they actually think should be used much more in, in, in Russia. They see Russia as too bureaucratic, too hidebound, full of officials who are too worried about, uh, you know, not following regulations and being caught out as a result, that it means that they miss opportunities and don't try anything new. And I think these people will also be pushing for a Wagnerization, not just of the military, but of the Russian state as a whole. That what matters is results, not how you achieve them. And it's a, a, a classic uh, underdog mentality. When you feel precisely that you are facing serious challenges that in many ways are way beyond your objective capacities to cope with, you have to dig for something else. For the Bolsheviks, if one looks particularly at the, the desperate times of the Civil War, it was terror, it was ruthless political expediency, and again, it was a willingness to try whatever was new. If you look at the Soviet Union within the equally desperate existential crisis of the early period of its war with Nazi Germany, again, what one saw was, and again, um, the Stalinist system was already one which had almost institutionalized a willingness to break the rules in the name of, of, of results, but, but again, you know, a willingness to basically do a, a full 180 degree ideological um, shift, reopen the churches, bring back generals from the labor camps, just do whatever is necessary for victory, because victory means survival. And I think, therefore, this is one of what, for me, is going to be a, a, an interesting kind of wider outcome of the Wagner experience. Is it internalized as a, this is why you need to keep the mad dogs under tight leash, and ideally with muzzles on them? Or does it become an example of, sure, yes, mistakes were made, classic formulation, and Prigozhin, remember Prigozhin is the bad guy here, not Wagner, even if the sledgehammers were wielded by Wagner fighters, not Prigozhin. Anyway, you know, Prigozhin led them astray, but actually Wagner demonstrated to us how we can fight, and we can fight precisely by breaking the rules, breaking international rules, breaking, frankly, the rules of, of, of morality, but also breaking our own rules if need be. I think it's, it's going to be one of these interesting um, political, cultural, narrative struggles that we're going to see playing out in for the rest of the war, but also when the war is um, 
understood and metabolized afterwards. This is what always happens with, with any kind of, 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 of war. But then it's, okay, how, how does the nation actually come to terms with it and understand it? And, and what lessons does it choose to draw from it? Because that is, frankly, I wouldn't say a, a field in which the realities are irrelevant, but I do think it's actually that the realities can be bent to all kinds of different narrative purposes. So we'll have to wait and see. Because after all, this is a war that's going to have massive and long-lasting consequences for Russia. Yes, I've talked about the, the um, you know, wider international and economic implications. There's going to be massive social implications as thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, and eventually hundreds of thousands of physically and mentally scarred veterans come home. I mean, crime is already on the increase. Last year alone, 30% increase in gun crime, according to official data. I think we can expect this year to probably see at least a similar increase. All kinds of different cases, or especially, but not solely, the convicts who have then been re released after their service. Um, last month, August, for example, in, in Karelia, there was a case when Igor Safonov, who was arrested for having committed six murders since he was uh, released from service. That's quick work, Igor. So, you know, that th th there's going to be criminality. But as I said, I think there is also going to be a kind of a wider discussion with which, in, in, in effect, Wagner will be at the centre of exactly how far, you might say, Russia needs to prioritise victory over following the rules or accept that there are limits beyond which one should not go. And Wagner, after all, epitomises both of them. So I think by the time I've become talking about rather more sort of wider philosophical issues, it probably means it's the time for me to, to wrap up. Bottom line is this. I think Wagner is going to wither. It's not going to solve the problems of Africa in doing so. It's certainly not going to solve Russia's military requirements in doing so. But on the other hand, I think it is clear that we can see the, the regular military becoming increasingly Wagnerized. And one of the key questions we'll find is whether Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, or his successor, which now that Prigozhin's dead, it's worth noting that it will be easier now for Putin to dismiss Defence Minister Shoigu and Gerasimov as Prigozhin demanded, without making it look as if he'd be giving in. So ironically, although people say Prigozhin's death is, is the sort of final victory for Shoigu, politically it might not be. That's, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But anyway, you know, even as the, the military might become Wagnerized, especially if some successor to Gerasimov is a little bit more uh, willing to be basically flexible, we also have to discuss and consider and observe how far Russian society will become, if not Wagnerized, but, shall we say, changed, shaped, distorted by the war effort. Clearly it is, but we don't yet know exactly what kind of distortions they may be. These are all political and cultural struggles yet to be played out. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. 
Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.